Hello, my name is Alan Mulhern. Welcome to The Quest, a point of administration. The Spanish language podcasts have now finished, at least for the time being, and we remain with the English-speaking ones, for which I am changing the release dates, which has been mid-month up to now, and I wish to change it to the first of the month, which is an easier date to remember. In this episode, I wish to firstly summarise what we have covered already on the climate catastrophe, secondly identify the other elements of the general ecological crisis aside from climate, thirdly name business civilization as the immediate source of the contemporary ecological crisis, whether it is the ultimate source is a subject of a later episode. Fourthly, introduce the Das Gupta Review, which is the most authoritative recent review of the contemporary biodiversity global trauma. And finally, I wish to consider Shelley's Ode to the West Wind, written over 200 years ago, which poetically elaborates an extraordinary idea of his own death and rebirth possibility, resulting from the enormous storm that he describes Can this poem also be viewed as a prophecy of the climatic crisis of our own times? This, then, is the third episode on the great ecological disaster. So far, we have covered the following. The opening episode focused on the rise in greenhouse gas emissions and the impact on global warming. Prior to the 1960s, we destroyed our natural environment without real knowledge of our actions. However, since then... There have been a series of predictions of doom that have grown in intensity. Over the last decade, the small stream of climate scientists predicting terrible danger has turned into a flood. If these predictions are, it is often an underestimate, since tipping points are being reached with runaway effects. It is no longer individual scientists or small research institutes that are reporting on these trends. There is now a worldwide network of organisations, institutions, universities, research institutes and government departments with extensive and sophisticated monitoring equipment across the globe, skies and space which are monitoring this evolving catastrophe. Examples of these were given from the United Nations departments. In a few short decades there has been a sea change in knowledge Now, the great majority of the world's climate scientists agree that climate change is deadly serious, anthropogenic, that is caused by humans, and highly dangerous. However, despite their so-called knowledge, globally there has been a huge institutional failure to grasp the urgency of what is happening and a shocking failure to act upon it. Neither are the populations of the world's democracies willing to vote for political parties that really prioritise this. Drifting into the mother of all storms is turning into a nightmare. Despite endless talk and writing, all screaming extreme danger, we are blasting through the 1.5 degrees centigrade threshold and beyond. Carbon dioxide emissions in July 2023 were at 421 parts per million continuing their year-by-year increase. For approximately 800,000 years, 
CO2 levels never rose above 300 parts per million and often averaged around 200 parts per million. In other words, atmospheric CO2 levels, the principal agent of greenhouse emissions and cause of global warming, are now almost 50% higher than their average throughout the history of our species. In 2023, June, July and August were the hottest on record. Additional CO2 rises will increase the magnitude of these changes. We are into new and very dangerous territory. Some consequences of only an average increase in temperature of 1 to 2 degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial level include melting ice caps and disappearance of Arctic summer ice, rises in sea levels around the world, and changes to convection currents in the North Atlantic. Disruption to the monsoon seasons, increased wildfires and hurricanes, exposures of millions more people to more extreme weather, increased flooding, loss of ecosystems, and reduced agricultural production. Business civilization, the immediate source of these problems, is the shocking embodiment of creation and destruction. On the one hand, it is humankind's most potent economic achievement. On the other, its planetary wreckage is diabolic. This episode ended asking if the contemporary attack on nature is a foremost example of evil. The following episode, the last one, S2 episode 88, part 2, The Ecological Catastrophe of the Anthropocene, covered the following. Life on this planet has always been dependent on and deeply interlinked with climate. The Earth passes through great cycles of glacial and warming conditions with enormous consequences for the promotion or restriction or even extinction of life. Suggested explanations of these cycles were given in the Milankovitch cycle, that is, Earth's position in the solar system, and the CO2 cycle, which consists of huge volcanic emissions, raising CO2 levels, thus increasing Earth's temperature and ending ice ages. This is followed by an explosion of life and a lowering of CO2 levels due to organisms, that is life, extracting carbon from the air, forests for example, and extracting carbon from the oceans, sea creatures with shells for example, and then storing it, for example as coal and oil formations. Humans only very recently have created disequilibrium to this Gaia system by using this very oil and coal for energy thus releasing the once stored carbon into the atmosphere and therefore suddenly heating the planet. On the one hand, it is climate change that has permitted the flourishing of life, but on the other, all life, as well as that of humankind, periodically lives on an existential climatic precipice. Hominins are ancestors adapted to changing habitats and climatic environments. The genus Homo, of which we are but one species, had an even greater capacity to adapt. Our knowledge, much of it very recent and startling, of the connection between climate history and the fate of different species of our own genus, gives us a shocking lesson. 
all but one of the Homo lineage have gone extinct. Many of these disappearances have coincided with periods of severe climate change. In addition, there have been severe bottlenecks, just short of extinction for Homo sapiens, actually. For example, the Mount Tobo explosion 75,000 years ago. Nature is often portrayed as the good or the terrifying mother. Nowhere is this more evident than in the relationship with climate and life itself. Climate change, often very severe, quite simply has been one of the biggest influences upon life on Earth and also upon human history. This current episode, S2 episode 89, will begin by examining more closely how business civilization as a whole is attacking nature and is creating an uninhabitable world. In particular, I wish to introduce the Dasgupta review called The Economics of Biodiversity, published in 2021, to help explain this. Dasgupta is spelled D-A-S-G-U-P-T-A. In the next episode, I will examine this further. I begin by pointing out that as deadly serious as the climate crisis is, it is only part of the general ecological disaster scenario. Various planetary boundaries have been identified. Firstly, climate, as already mentioned. The Paris COP conference of 2015 was a supposedly legally binding agreement to hold the rise in Earth's temperatures, average yearly temperature that is, to 1.5 degrees centigrade, up to a maximum of 2 degrees centigrade, above the pre-industrial level. This would be carried out by a series of carbon dioxide reductions, which would peak by 2025 and then reduce by 45% by 2030. That is in five years flat. It has been emphasised recently by the IPCC that passing the 1.5 degrees centigrade threshold will have even more severe consequences than originally thought. At this point in time, September 2023, I do not know of anyone who expects the 1.5 degrees centigrade threshold to hold, and similarly for the 2 degrees centigrade threshold. Secondly, biodiversity loss. The Desktop Review reports that, quote, biodiversity is declining faster than at any time in human history. Current extinction rate of species, for example, are around 100 to 1,000 times higher than the baseline rate. And this rate of extinction is increasing. The baseline rate is the long-term average extinction rate. Thirdly, chemical pollution. We dump enormous quantities of toxic chemicals into the environment with diverse and unpredictable impacts. Fourthly, particle pollution of the atmosphere. We also continue to use the atmosphere as a dumping ground for pollution, particularly aerosols, which change weather patterns. Fifthly, deforestation and land use. We've converted massive amounts of forests, grasslands, wetlands and other vegetated areas to human use mostly for agricultural purposes. This is environmentally unsustainable. Sixthly, fresh water. Humans are using half the Earth's available fresh water, moreover at accelerating rates, which cannot be replenished. 
Seventhly, the phosphorus and nitrogen cycle. We are causing the oceans to become more acidic and warmer, which is bleaching the coral reefs and destroying the base of the aquatic food chain. 80% of the phosphorus that is mined is used to make fertilisers. Phosphates from fertilisers, sewage and detergents cause pollution in lakes and streams. Over-enrichment of phosphate in both fresh and inshore marine waters leads to massive algae blooms, that is, deoxygenation of water and the death of fish. Human interference in the phosphorus cycle occurs then by overuse or the careless use of phosphorus fertilisers, resulting in devastating water ecosystems. We live in a globally polluting business civilization where increasingly most parts of the earth are drawn into this species suicidal activity. For example, phosphorus-rich runoff from farms in north-central United States contribute heavily to transforming the estuary of the Mississippi River into a dead zone. Fertilisers and pesticides pollute the rivers and groundwaters of the vast Indo-Ganges plain in India. Emissions of soot from kitchens in the Indian subcontinent affect the circulation patterns of the monsoons. Fish in the North Sea eat microplastics originating in markets in the Bahamas and so on. Of the seven thresholds just mentioned, two of them, according to the Dasgupta Review, have already been passed, those of climate and biodiversity loss, whereby tipping points have been triggered thus unleashing runaway effects with unpredictable consequences. The remaining five, chemical pollution, particle pollution of the atmosphere, deforestation and land use, freshwater and the phosphorus and nitrogen cycles are dangerously close to passing their threshold levels. Now, potential sources for our current ecological crisis, what could they be? Well, they include the following. The Great Acceleration, that is, the economic acceleration from the 1950s onwards. To which the answer might be, de-accelerate and change energy sources. Problem, the world cannot choose to decelerate. It's incapable. However, deceleration could be forced upon it. Secondly, the Industrial Revolution from the 1770s onwards with the exploitation of fossil fuels. Answer, possibly question the main philosophies of industrialization. The world is moving to the post-industrial world, but not at sufficient speed to avoid the climate and ecological crisis. And of course, tremendous new industrialization has been taking place throughout a lot of East Asia, especially China. They're not going to dismantle their wealth-making program, industrialization for the sake of some theory that's largely come out of the West. Thirdly, capitalism as the source of the ecological crisis. Answer might be find other forms of economic and societal arrangements. Yes, but look at China and Russia and the Middle East who have done so, but still are major polluters. China's the biggest CO2 polluter in the world by a huge distance, and Russia's in the top five, and the Middle East is not far behind. Fourthly, business civilization, as a very wide term, 
as the major source of the climate crisis is my choice. This is the widest term and it doesn't get confused with the political ideologies, communism, state capitalism, various forms of socialism and so on. However, at the moment, no one has an answer for an effective radical replacement of business civilization. Reforms are possible, yes, but they appear inadequate at the moment to deal with the immensity of the ecological catastrophe. A more distant source of the global ecological crisis is the Western scientific enlightenment itself, initiating a new way of thinking about the world, a new way to exploit it, an understanding of its nature, its mechanics, the science of what made it work, and the knowledge and ability to control it. Undoubtedly, in a general sense, that lies behind the whole Industrial Revolution and a business civilization. More specifically, Max Weber, for example, described the Protestant Revolution as the source of capitalism. That is a new way of thinking in religious terms in the 16th century, whereby the Protestant Revolution encouraged thrift, investment, employment and a work ethic. Didn't think you have to be poor to go to heaven. Having riches was okay or good since it led to a more general wealth, etc. So this was a change in value systems and attitudes and especially religious beliefs and away from the previous Catholic past, which was generally anti-commercial against interest lending, for example, and had a broad philosophy which was supposedly against money, whereas the Protestant Revolution favoured the making of profit. A more general sense has been suggested that the Bible itself gave permission for mankind to dominate animals and dominate the earth. And therefore it lies in the very origins of our religious and mythological systems. But there is an even more overarching category as the source of the modern crises, especially the climatic and ecological, one of theological import. This is the human condition. That is, that there is something in human nature itself which is the ultimate source of our woes, rather like the myth of the Garden of Eden, whereby the taking of the apple of the tree of knowledge, that is, entering into human consciousness itself, is the source of the fall from the garden. Or like Wagner's ring cycle, whereby it's the theft of the ring from the Rhine at the very beginning of everything that is the original cause of the vast drama of the gods, humans and the underworld. That is to say, the history of human consciousness. The immediate cause, however, of the multiple ecological crises of our time is business civilization, which is the ring or treasure that has been stolen from nature pulls everyone into its orbit and is the source of all conflict, war and greed. Business civilization is a useful term since this embraces countries of whatever political persuasion. China and India may not regard themselves as classic capitalist countries, but they are contemporary major contributors to the ecological crisis, as the West is also. 
The Das Gupta Review is the most distinguished of the investigations of ecology and economics, business civilization, in other words, and breaks new ground in explaining this relationship between economics and ecology. I should like to read to you some of the foreword to this highly acclaimed review by David Attenborough. We are facing a global crisis. We are totally dependent upon the natural world. It supplies us with every oxygen-laden breath we take and every mouthful of food we eat. But we are currently damaging it so profoundly that many of its natural systems are now on the verge of breakdown. We are now so mechanically ingenious that we are able to destroy a rainforest, the most species-rich ecosystem that has ever existed, and replace it with plantations of a single species in order to feed burgeoning human populations on the other side of the world. No single species in the whole history of life has ever been so successful or so dominant. Now we are plundering every corner of the world, apparently neither knowing or caring what the consequences might be. Each nation is doing so within its own territories. Those with lands bordering the sea fish not only in their offshore waters but in parts of the ocean so far from land that no single nation can claim them. So now we are stripping every part of both the land and the sea in order to feed our ever-increasing numbers. How has the natural world managed to survive this unrelenting, ever-increasing onslaught by a single species? The answer, of course, is that many animals have not been able to do so. When Europeans first arrived in southern Africa, they found immense herds of antelope and zebra. They are now gone, and vast cities stand in their stead. Nonetheless, in spite of these assaults, the biodiversity of the world is still immense, and therein lies the strength that has enabled much of its wildlife to survive until now. If conditions change, either climatically or as a consequence of a new development in the never-ending competition between species, the ecosystem as a whole is able to maintain its vigour. But consider the following facts. Today, we ourselves, together with the livestock we rear for food, constitute 96% of the mass of all mammals on the planet. Only 4% is everything else, from elephants to badgers, from moose to monkeys. And 70% of all birds alive at this moment are poultry, mostly chickens for us to eat. We are destroying biodiversity, the very characteristic that until recently enabled the natural world to flourish so abundantly. If we continue this damage, whole ecosystems will collapse. This is now a real risk. That was David Attenborough's forward to the Dasgupta Review. Finally, I wish to comment on the romantic poet Shelley and his Ode to the West Wind. This famous poem consists of five stanzas. The first describes the autumn wind, driving the dead leaves to their wintry bed, but also the winged seeds that will bring new life in the coming spring. The wild west wind is both destroyer and preserver. There is an invocation repeated throughout the poem, to hear. The second stanza in its opening 
accomplishes one of the most torturous technical tasks of any poem I've read. Shelley describes the tremendous wild drama of the storm, which is the sepulchre for the dying year. The third stanza, by way of contrast, switches to the image of the dreamy and peaceful late summer Mediterranean being woken by the west wind. The fourth stanza declares Shelley's troubled soul, his sorrow and his identification with the wind and his longing to recover his elemental wild nature. The fifth stanza is a mystical merger with the wind, a premonition of his own death and the invocation of a rebirth with the words of the poet being scattered like leaves in the storm across the universe to quicken a new birth. Lines evoking a union with the universal spirit. Now you may think it's a stretch of my imagination to move from Shelley's individual identification with the storm and his intuition of rebirth to a collective experience of the storm of climate change of our own age. Surely Shelley, over 200 years ago, could have had no presentiment of the ecological catastrophe of our age. Perhaps, but he certainly had a presentiment of the collapse of civilization. In the same year that he wrote Ode to the West Wind, he had written the poem Ozymandias, in which the utter collapse of civilization is contemplated. This was explored in an earlier podcast, season 2, episode 47. Also his wife, Mary Wollenscraft Shelley, wrote the famous Frankenstein novel, which he was very familiar with. In it, the newly created Frankenstein, analogous perhaps to AI in the modern world, threatens humanity. Whichever way one reads this, a rebirth motif emerging out of an identification with apocalyptical destruction lets one read this extraordinary poem in a different light. Where, I wonder, is the equivalent of Shelley's poem for our own apocalyptical age? Shelley wrote this poem in the forests above Florence in 1819 and published it in the following year. He had travelled south from England and was to stay on the northwest coast of Italy by the Mediterranean, where his friend Byron was also encamped. Two years later, in July 1822, when Shelley was 29 years old, attempting to sail home across the Gulf of Spezia in northwest Italy, his boat capsized and he drowned in a severe storm. The Gulf has become known as El Golfo dei Poeti. He had a copy of Keats's poems in his pocket when he died. Keats had also died the year previously in Rome, aged 25. Here is the poem. A wild west wind, thou breath of autumn's being, thou from whose unseen presence the leaves dead are driven, like ghosts from an enchanter fleeing. Yellow and black and pale and hectic red, O pestilence-stricken multitudes, O thou who drivest to their dark wintry bed the winged seeds, where they lie cold and low, each like a corpse within its grave. <laughs> 
until thine azure sister of the spring shall blow her clarion o'er the dreamy earth and fill driving sweet buds like flocks that feed in air with living hues and odours plain and hill wild spirit which art moving everywhere destroyer and preserver here o oh here thou on whose stream mid the steep skies commotion loose clouds like earth's decaying leaves are shed shook from the tangled bowers of heaven and ocean angels of rain and lightning there are spread on the blue surface of thine airy surge like the bright hair uplifted from the head of some fierce maenad even from the dim verge of the horizon to the zenith's height the locks of the approaching storm thou dirge of the dying year to which this closing night will be the dome of a vast sepulchre vaulted with all thy congregated might of vapours from whose solid atmosphere black rain and fire and hail will burst over here thou who didst waken from his summer dreams the blue mediterranean where he lay lulled by the coil of his crystalline streams beside a pumice isle in bay's bay and saw in sleep old palaces and towers quivering within the waves in tense day all overgrown with azure moss and flowers so sweet the senses faint picturing them thou for whose path the atlantic's level powers cleave themselves into chasms while far below the sea blooms and the oozy woods which wear the sapless foliage of the ocean know thy voice and suddenly grow grey with fear and tremble and despoil themselves oh here if i were a dead leaf thou mightst bear if i were a swift cloud to fly with thee a wave to pant beneath thy power and share the impulse of thy strength only less free than thou a uncontrollable if even i were as in my boyhood and could be the comrade of thy wanderings over heaven as then when to outstrip the sky's speed scarce seemed a vision i would ne'er have striven as thus with thee in prayer in my sore need oh lift me as a wave a leaf a cloud i fall upon the thorns of life i bleed a heavy weight of ours has chained and bowed one too like thee tameless and swift and proud make me thy lyre even as the forest is what if my leaves are falling like its own the tumult of thy mighty harmonies will take from both a deep autumnal tone sweet though in sadness be thou spirit fierce my spirit be thou me impetuous one drive my dead thoughts over the universe like withered leaves to 
quicken a new birth. And, by the incantation of this verse, scatter, as from an unextinguished hearth, ashes and sparks, my words among mankind. Be through my lips to unawakened earth, the trumpet of a prophecy. A wind, if winter comes, can spring be far behind. <laughs>